We're in an eight-week series on the book of Revelation. And if you know anything about Revelation, it's 22 chapters. So you know by the nature of me saying eight weeks, I'm going to move. And I am. Today I'm going to cover approximately three chapters, three and a half chapters. And we're going to look at a next set of judgments. We looked last week at another set. I'll bring you up to speed in a moment. This week we're going to look at another set of judgments. But to bring you up to speed, because not every week everybody's here, to bring you up to speed on where we are, I want to do a quick review, and it's going to be very quick. The book of Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. The last book in the New Testament. It is what's called an apocalyptic book. What this means is it's a type of genre in which God reveals his perspective on history in light of its final outcome. Apocalyptic literature is filled with otherworldly images and symbolism that is really strange. And perhaps if you've read the book of Revelation before, even in your mind right now, you're thinking about some of the things that you've read. We're going to look at one of the most strange images in the book, these demonic locust scorpion things that are in chapter uh, 9. But the book is full of these otherworldly, weird imagery. But the purpose of apocalyptic literature, and we don't really have a genre like this today, not even our dystopian stuff is like this. The purpose of this type of literature is to reveal God's perspective on history, what is going on around us in light of its final outcome. We saw that that's the genre, but we saw in the first week of our series that the book is written to the church, that its purpose is to encourage a suffering church to persevere, to overcome, to endure faithfully. The book is telling us that within the life of our Christian faith, there is always the choice, the choice to compromise or the choice to be faithful. And Revelation was specifically written to pull back the veil and give us images into the future to give us a picture of the reality of what is coming, both in judgment and in final victory, so that we would be encouraged, even if this world is really difficult. And no matter how, life you're good, how good your life is going right now, there's no question that this world is very difficult at times. That suffering is everywhere. It is written to encourage you in those moments when you have the fork in the road and you have to choose between, suffer, or by, between compromise or faithfulness. In the second week, We looked at chapters 4 and 5, and we looked at uh, God's perspective on things. We we saw that in chapters 4 and 5 that there's like this veil is taken down between the heavenly realm, what is happening right now in the heavenlies, and what is happening on earth. And while on earth there is tons of suffering in the heavens right now, according to Revelation 4 and 5, God has already achieved victory over evil, and he has achieved it through the slain lamb. We saw that Jesus' death, the slain lamb, Jesus, has already gained victory over evil. And Jesus is able in chapters 4 and 5 to open a scroll. And the scroll contains God's plan to bring evil to its final defeat. But we saw right now that all the celestial beings are in heaven praising the slain lamb for a victory that is already achieved in heaven, a victory that is just not yet fully consummated on earth. And the scroll that Jesus opened that we started to see unsealed last week is a scroll that contains 
how God's victory over evil will finally and forever be accomplished. A victory that is already achieved, but has not yet been fully experienced. And then last week, we started for the first time really looking at the future. And it's represented in these seven sealed judgments. In Revelation, there are three sets of seven judgments. There are seven seal judgments. We looked at those last week. There are seven trumpet judgments. We looked at those. Uh, we will look at those today. And there are seven bold judgments. We'll look at those next week. In the seven seal judgments, we looked at the question, how will you survive the process of God ridding the world of evil? Because it is something we all long for, I think, for injustice to be done with and for evil to no longer reign on this earth. No more ISIS, no more Lord's Resistance Army in Africa, no more apartheid, no more of any of these evils and injustices. And if we keep it at that macro level, we never get involved with it. But the danger is God is in the process of getting rid of evil. But when we are self-aware enough, we realize that evil inhabits us. And it is God's plan and his purpose to destroy evil without destroying you. And the seal judgments start to reveal it. In the seal judgments, we saw that God allows total depravity, human depravity, to run its course. And still humanity does not turn back. Things get so bad that the martyred saints in heaven who have been killed by those who are, represent the evil forces in this world, the martyred saints cry out in heaven in the fifth seal, how long will this take place until you avenge our blood and bring the defeat of evil. And God reveals that one day he will and humanity will be judged and finally and forever defeated. This week, we look at the trumpet judgments. The seal judgments teach us that that victory is possible and that we will survive it if we follow in the pathway of the slain lamb. It talks about a, a army But the army is not militant. The army is an army that follows in the path of the slain lamb. And so how will we survive the process of getting rid of evil? Right now we are amongst evil, but we will survive not if we destroy people before they destroy us, but if we sacrificially, through suffering, follow in the pathway of the slain lamb. And this week we come to the trumpet judgments. They're found on Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, and you can turn there in your Bibles. It's on page 996 if you're following along in one of the blue Bibles that we provide for you. Page 996. As you turn there, I want to give you a little context. The entire book of Revelation is filled with judgment, judgment against evil. And at some points, God does three different things. At some points in the book, God allows Uh, humanity's evil to come back on them and for them to experience the consequences of their evil. At some times, at some points, God is actively bringing judgment against evil, although it's always um, limited until the very end. And in other moments, we're going to see an example of this today, God allows the forces of evil itself, the demonic forces of evil, into the world. The evil forces that humanity really is following, whether they know it or not, if they do not follow in the path of the slain lamb. And he allows those forces to run around the world and cause judgment and chaos. 
But the question that you might be thinking, and it's the most natural question in the world, why does God allow this to happen? Why does God allow judgment? And the reason he does it is because judgment is always done by someone who is loving with the purpose of bringing that person back. So, the question this morning is obvious. As we look at the trumpet judgments, what will cause humanity to turn to God? And here, when I use the language of humanity, I'm not meaning those who are already following in the path of the slain lamb, that are already following Jesus. I'm talking about those on earth who want nothing to do with God, and who are not following him. The whole mission of our church revolves around being the kind of church that introduces people to Jesus so that we follow in the path of the slain lamb, so that we follow Jesus together. But the question this morning and the trumpet judgments are addressed this indirectly is, what will cause humanity to turn back to God. And what we will see this morning, and I'll tell you in a moment the full answer, but what we will see this morning is that judgment is just a piece. It is not the full picture. And in fact, it's an incomplete piece. Uh, And think about it this way. You've got a son that you want to reform. You can beat that boy until he's raw and red. And I probably shouldn't talk so bluntly like this. But that does not cause that little boy to come back to God. What will cause humanity to turn back to God? The book of Revelation is full of judgment, but not the judgment of a father with a reed who beats their unwilling, uh, disobedient child. It is far, far different than that. And you'll have to stick with me to see it. Because the picture gets bleak. Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 7. What will cause humanity to turn back to God? Actually, we'll start in 6. Then seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. You see, these first four judgments, the first four trumpet judgments, come quickly. And really what they do is they mimic, they kind of replicate with important differences some of the plagues on the land of Egypt during the time of Moses. Perhaps if you remember those plagues, you'll recognize the uh, similarities. The first plague with blood, the second plague with blood, the the third trumpet has the bitter poisonous water, and the fourth trumpet with darkness. 
All of these plagues replicate a portion of the Egyptian plagues. Now, what was the purpose of the Egyptian plagues? Grant Osborne in his commentary on Revelation said something I thought was really helpful. He says this, the three, that the Egyptian plagues had a threefold purpose, and they are these, to prove the power of God, to prove the power of God, to prove the impotence or the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods. If you study the Egyptian plagues, you'll notice that every single one of those plagues had an Egyptian god that was supposed to be in control of the Nile, an Egyptian god in control of the dark and light. And so what God did is he said, I am powerful and your gods are not powerful. If you study the Egyptian plagues closely, you'll notice that the first few plagues, the Egyptian sorcerers are able to replicate, albeit less convincingly. They're able to, t- to turn small cups and small uh, you know, containers of water to blood. Moses turns the Nile River to blood, which I learned in geography is the longest river in the world, yeah? The Egyptians are able, Moses turns his staff into a snake. Well, the Egyptian can turn his staff into a snake. But Moses' staff eats the Egyptian staff. But eventually the plagues continue, and Pharaoh goes to his sorcerers, and they just throw their hands up in the air, and they say, we can't do this one. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. The plagues in Egypt were given to represent that God is powerful, and he is more powerful than any other force than the Egyptian gods have. They have the same effect today. And there was a third purpose to the Egyptian plagues, again, according to Grant Osborne. And this is very important. To give Pharaoh a chance to repent. After every single plague, what does Moses do? Will you now, will you now let my people go? He says he will a few times, then he goes back on his word. And eventually, he is broken by the last plague, and even then he turns against his word, leading to the Egyptian army's demise. You can all read all about it in the middle sections of Exodus. But here, these plagues have the same purpose, although with a small twist. The trumpets are given to prove the power of God, for he is actively doing this, albeit limited, only a third. The the trumpets are given to show the futility of turning away from God. And the trumpets are given to give those experiencing these events the opportunity to repent. And the text is actually explicit about this intent, the intent to repent. It says it a little later in chapter chapter 9, verse 20, that after they experienced these first four, still the people would not repent. The first four trumpet judgments, like the plagues of Egypt, prove the power of God and give the people a chance to repent. The next three trumpet judgments are introduced in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Remember how I said this is an apocalyptic book, and here you get one of these weird apocalyptic symbols of uh, images of an eagle flying through the air that can cry, and his cry is, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's not speaking to a horse, W-O-E. He's proclaiming trouble, trouble, trouble. And so these next three judgments are called the woe trumpet judgments, W-O-E. 
They are about to be sounded, and when they do, they will bring incredible devastation. The first of the woe judgments, the fifth trumpet judgment, is introduced in chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky and to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. The abyss is the underworld. It's the, what they would have understood it to be. It is just like there's a veil in this thinking between our world and the heavenly places. There is a veil between the underworld and the earth. And here in chapter 9, a key is given to symbolically open that veil. And when the veil is opened, from the abyss, smoke rose. The smoke like it was from a gigantic furnace. The smoke is so great that the sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke came locusts down on earth. And they were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Here we see another reference back to the Egyptian plagues. The later Egyptian plagues do not get, uh, affect the Israelites who lived in Goshen, for God put a seal over that space, and the plagues didn't come there. The hail and all the flies and the frogs and all the plagues, they didn't go. And here it's the same thing. The seal of God is the same seal that is referenced in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4 through 8. Though those who will be protected, who will survive the judgment of God, are those with the seal on their foreheads. And here, there are those who follow in the path of the slain lamb who have this same seal on their foreheads. And this fifth trumpet judgment, the demonic locust scorpions, which just sounds crazy when you put it into words, they are protected from. Verse 5, they were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and the Greek is in Apollyon, that is, the destroyer. I don't know what these demonic locust beings are. There's been lots of different uh, guesses as to which. Is it literal? Is it symbolic? I don't know. Don't care that much, actually. But what I do know is think about what's going on here. God is allowing the forces of evil The same forces that the inhabitants of the earth do not follow in the path. And those forces, the forces that the inhabitants of the earth are following instead of the slain lamb, are now unleashed on earth, and the people of earth do not find them as friends, but as foes. Have you ever, I thought about this, be like really careful who you give your allegiance to. I've seen this happen so many times in life where people have a, it's oftentimes a parent, but it can be a friend. And it's someone that 
cares for them very deeply. You know, but this often happens in parenting. The parent, out of love, maybe they handle it well, maybe they don't. Teenage years are weird. The teenager hears what the parent says, and they say, my parents don't care because they're not letting me do what I want. And they give their allegiance to sources that will destroy them. Yes? And so the humanity is experiencing the result of giving their allegiance to a source that is not worthy of it, that cares nothing for them, and in fact, torments them mercilessly for five months. There is irony here, for it is the inhabitants of the earth who do not follow in the path of the slain lamb as a result of their evil who have killed many of those who do follow in the path of the slain lamb. You can see it in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And the irony here is the same people represented in the book who have killed the martyred saints are now, when they experience the natural consequences of those they follow, the forces of evil, who are crying out to God to kill them, to save them from the forces of evil. The irony is they have killed the martyred saints, but God will not allow them to die. Be very, very careful who you give your allegiance to. The sixth trumpet is is played. Verse 12, the first woe is past. The two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the mankind was killed by three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The sixth trumpet kind of reminds us of the fourth seal. In the fourth seal, a fourth of humankind is killed, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Here, a third of humanity is wiped out by these demonic cavalry. 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 I always get that word mixed up. And still we see, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What I think we see here, and we see it very clearly, is that God's judgment alone will not cause humanity to repent. God's judgment, or any form of judgment, by itself will not bring repentance. 
It is like beautifully worded, but beautifully evil and sad. That even after humanity has experienced the devastation of the first six trumpets, still they will not repent. They will not give up their idols, which they made. They will not turn from sexual immorality. They will not turn from magic arts. They will not turn from stealing. It reminds me of that read I talked about earlier in the hands of a father who is unloving, who whips their child until they're red and bloody. This does not lead the child to repentance. God here never brought these judgments for the sole purpose of whipping wayward humanity. Remember how I mentioned these judgments represent three categories of God bringing judgment against evil, of allowing humanity to experience the consequences of their actions, of their sin, and allowing them to experience the other side to which they are so stupidly drawn, the forces of evil. And yet, with these means alone, the people still choose not to repent. Just like Pharaoh, plague after plague after plague after plague until 10 plagues are done, till his heart is broken with his dead son in his hands. And still he won't repent. In his grief, he lets the people of Israel go. But his grief gives way to anger, not to repentance. And he chases down the Israelites. And in the process, God wipes out the Egyptian army. God's judgment, or judgment in general, by itself, will not bring about repentance. Judgment must have another element that accompanies it. Chapter 10, I'll just summarize for you quickly. In chapter 10, a mighty angel appears, and the language is very beautiful. He is so large, apparently he puts his right foot down in one body of water and his left foot goes in the other. He's this massive being. It's apocalyptic, symbolic. And this massive being has this little scroll in his hand and he hands it to John and he says, take and eat it. We saw that this is a similar uh, imagery from Ezekiel chapter, end of chapter two. It does not mean he's eating paper. It means he's absorbing the information in the scroll. And John here takes the scroll and he eats it. And this text tells us something really interesting. It tastes like honey but it's bitter and it tastes sweet, but it's bitter in his stomach. And after he does that, we are told something else happens. He then, after he eats the scroll, the sweet taste, the bitter feeling in his stomach, he sees two more visions. The first vision is in Revelation chapter 1 and 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer courts. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Some people think that this is a future telling of a time when Jerusalem will be destroyed, but yet there's this 
measuring of the temple. It's like this protection of the temple. If you read Zechariah chapter 2, you'll see that the measuring represents protection. Others think that this refers to the church because in the New Testament, many of the New Testament authors refer to the temple as the new church, the temple where uh, the people of God. Either way, what this is saying is that God's people are not going to be immune from judgment. But then something else happened, and the next vision of the future happens. Verse 3, And I will appoint two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire will come from their mouth and devour them from their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They will have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they will have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they want. These witnesses come onto earth and they are given ultimate protection by God, the ability to keep proclaiming their message. Some think these are two future prophets that represent Moses and Elijah who will come in the future. Some think this again represents the church. The witnesses here are called lampstands and in Revelation 1.20, John very clearly defines the churches as the seven lampstands. It could be both. It could represent two witnesses in the future who really will come onto the scene and that these witnesses represent kind of a part of the testimony of the church. But these witnesses come onto the scene for the purpose of giving testimony. Verse 7. But when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them And their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every tribe, people, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to give them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. A couple interesting things here. The torment the witnesses bring is the torment of their testimony. And when they are finally killed, they're killed by a mysterious figure that we're going to look at further next week, referred to simply as the beast. But notice where the beast comes from, verse 7. He comes from the abyss, the very same place where the demonic locust came from, who had just tormented the inhabitants of the earth for, seven, or for five months. This teaches us that humanity gets lost. That humanity just refuses to see reality. And even when things that happen that are evil, they don't even look to the source of its happening. The beast comes from the abyss just like the demonic locusts. But after three and a half days, the breath of life entered the witnesses and they are brought back to life. And terror strikes those who saw. Then they heard a loud voice from, from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was an earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. 
And the survivors were terrified. And finally, some gave glory to God. What is different? I've said a lot of stuff. And you could get lost in this. What is different about the message of the two witnesses as opposed to the first six trumpet judgments? The difference is the witness of the, the testimony of the two witnesses to the slain lamb. The difference is that it is not anymore just about judgment, but it is God's judgment that is mixed with mercy that will lead people to repentance. God's judgment mixed with mercy that will lead people to repentance. We will continue next week as we look at the seven bold judgments, but as we kind of conclude our time this morning, I want to give you a few takeaways. Chapter, 15, or chapter 11, verse 15 through 19 will end, and the day of the Lord will come, and evil will finally be defeated. But what do the trumpet judgments want to really leave us with? First, God's judgment is never just about punishment. His judgment is about leading us back to repentance and ultimately about creating a reality where evil is forever defeated. Second, humanity has a great ability to be stupid and disillusioned. Even when these two witnesses are killed by a beast that comes from the very place of their most difficult tormentors, humanity does not see it. And when finally, through witnesses, are brought up to heaven, there is judgment, yes. But when the witnesses are brought up to heaven, it is finally through the mercy of God, mixed with his judgment, that some are able to see and give glory to God. Next week, we will continue in our series, and we'll look at further at the identity of the beast and what it all means. But what it means here, as we conclude, is, We have a choice, a choice to place our faith in God and follow in the path of the slain lamb, or a choice to follow in the path of the forces of evil represented by the beast and suffer its defeat. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would be with us. Um, I pray that through these just crazy scenes of uh, otherworldly judgment that you would open our eyes to see the reality of your mercy throughout, that, throughout all of it that is calling us to repentance. I pray that you would soften our hearts, you would keep us humble, and help us to move back towards you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.